Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Ernest Johans Meyer. Ernest is the founder and managing partner at Inherited Data, a company that revolutionizes the real estate and probate attorney sector by providing access to over 150,000 unpublished inherited property records each month, complete with 35 contact points for each record. Based in Orlando, Florida, Ernest has been with Inherited Data since 2019, contributing to its mission of being an exponential game changer for businesses in the real estate industry. With real-time deceased data, Inherited Data empowers real estate investors, brokers, and probate attorneys nationwide to make informed decisions and grow their businesses. I've asked Ernest to join us here today to share his journey and talk about turning big data into big dollars. So, Ernest, thank you so much for joining us. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's an honor and a pleasure. I love what you do. I just find it even so fascinating because it really is. I did this, I forget who it was, but I did this. I went to this seminar, like three, four day seminar once upon a time. And the guy was always talking about, you want to know the moment, the second time the car doesn't start. And I said, what does that mean? The first time someone gets in their car and the engine doesn't start right away, they jiggle, they, oh, I think something's wrong. And then it kicks up and they go, okay. And then they go on their way. But the second time that happens, they go, oh, maybe I have a problem. And so I just feel like you've really nailed that, you know, that, yeah, just a, a binary moment in time that causes a lot of activity, so to speak. Now, before we get into that, though, how did you even get started in business? Do you have a long business career? Were your parents entrepreneurs? Is this a family trait? That's a great question. It's funny. My, my father worked for IBM for 40 years. So I would say that would be the opposite of an entrepreneur because it was a right. very stable for him. But I did notice he would get up every single day and go to work for 40 years. And so I guess that showed me that I needed to do something similar. And so it, it was funny. I didn't know what I wanted to do or ever before. But when I was six years old, or no, I'm sorry, sixth grade, I take that back. My father bought a lawnmower and to cut the grass. And I said, I'll cut it. And I asked him if I could use it to cut other people's lawns. And sure enough, I went out and knocked on doors. And within, by the end of the summer, I had like 25 clients. So it was crazy. So I got my first taste of money coming in. And so took that into the winter and bought a big Good. snowblower at driveways. And so I guess at that point in, in, in that sixth grade, I realized I was going to be an entrepreneur. Also, I was doing babysitting and had a paper route back then. Got it. So then what were some of the first lessons that you had to learn in business? That's funny. I took this business through high school and then went off to college and let that go. And I started working with a friend who had a restaurant. It was a little delivery restaurant and we delivered chicken wings and rotisserie chickens and all kinds of fun stuff. And that friend of mine was a marketing nut, crazy guy. He would read every book he could get his hands on. He was always doing something. And so he would get up in the morning and he'd go put out flyers for the restaurant first thing in the morning to office complexes and put out a couple hundred and come back and we'd just be so busy from all those flyers. And then he'd do the same thing at lunch, go and hit Mark guy. And it was amazing. And we got to the point where we were really cranking. I so I learned that market how important marketing is to a business. It's like you your business is as strong as your marketing plan. Mm. And so we got that business to really twenty thousand a week in delivery back twenty years ago, before internet stuff, before the, all the internet marketing it was grassroots marketing. But I learned that was something that had to happen in every business. And so you have to push every day and then find your marketing niche, I think is so important. So that's one of the main lessons I learned. What do you mean by finding your marketing niche? So I feel like every business that you have has a specific 
marketing plan that would work better than others. So for instance, back then it was putting flyers on people's houses and door doorways, trying to get the menu, the information out to people. And it worked really good. And so if you just did it every day, it would snowball. And we got to the point it was really busy. I think every business has their own marketing plan. Today, lots of digital marketing, lots of new tools that we're having access to that are really helping. So finding that specific process, that marketing process that makes your business thrive, I think is so important. All right. So you help with the restaurant is how long were you in that? And did you have another business after that? Yeah, I did that for about 15 years. And before I got out of the restaurant business, I actually did open a restaurant with a partner. We had a little Mexican place in Georgia, in Marietta, Georgia. And we got that very busy. And after about five years, we decided to sell it. So we got rid of that and mm. back in early 2000s. Got it. Yeah, okay, okay. So again, are there other lessons that you feel? Obviously, marketing, getting people to bodies through the door is super important. What were some of the other biggest lessons that you feel like you've had to learn on that journey? I think that the most important part of your business, besides your marketing plan and the number one part of your business or your most important part of your business, obviously, is your customer. But I think systems and processes are always something that I've always really been interested in within business because you can run yourself ragged. So if you have a good process, a good system in place, it really can help propel you to the next level. And so everything I do in business, I try to master it. I try to find my systems. And I think the biggest thing I can tell somebody is you have to push every single day. Anything in life, like you want to be a bodybuilder, great. You have to do it every single day. And if you don't, you're not going to get there. And you want to be an entrepreneur, you got to push every single day. Just like when I was in the restaurant business, I was a seven days a week, open to close, 100, 110 hours a week. I had to push constantly else it was not going to work. I love that. So hard work is not a guarantee for success. It's just the buy-in to even play the game. Would you say that is a fair statement? Yeah, I would. The hard work is big, but I think knowledge is huge too. And, and obviously the investment <laughs> to be in restaurant right. business. Yeah, that's a big part. One of my favorite quotes, I was big. A lot of my followers know that I was at a martial arts school and I trained with a lot of world champions in that. And one of my favorite quotes that I got from that experience was hard work will always beat talent when talent refuses to work hard. And I, that's just such a, but again, it's not enough. It's just not enough. There's so many people that are willing to work. You, like you said, you got to find a way to work smart as well and get some leverage. So how about in a restaurant? I think there's probably a lot of people involved too. Can you speak to managing people in that respect? When I was in the restaurant business, oh, I had yeah. to manage. I was managing people. I was doing inventory, doing payroll, yep. making menus on the computer to see if I could make it look better. Coupons. It was every. I did everything. I did the. I put the flyers out myself. Right. You speak to managing people. Is that easy? You say, "Hey, I need your help with this," and then they do it at a great. Yeah, day. I think management. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think the philosophy that you have is good. If you are kind to people and you encourage them and they'll help you, they'll do whatever you ask them to do. And, and sometimes even as the owner, I had to go out there and clean the toilet because we, were, we needed it. And I think when they saw me do that, they did, they realized I was willing to do whatever it takes. And so they were willing to do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. and, and I was always kind to the staff that I had, knowing that I was appreciative. I feel like they gave me a hundred percent. Okay. Okay. Any tips on hiring in that? The best, the way I hired a lot of my staff was networking. I'd get somebody that was good and I'd ask them if they knew anybody that could work that was good too. 
it was a tight knit. When you're in the restaurant business, you, business, you know who's in the business and who, is, who knows how to cook, who knows how to do whatever, wait tables, bartend and stuff. So it was one of those things I'd network off, off, off the current staff. What would you recommend to someone who's maybe just starting out or struggling in their business? Vague general question. That is huge. That's a big, that is general. What do I recommend? I think that if you find that niche that I mentioned, the, the, how to market your business, I think that has to be the first thing that you do every single solitary day. So you need to be pushing out the message to that you're what you're doing and be very specific. Try to find t- ways not to do things that waste your time. Some of the mundane things, if you can outsource that stuff, because when you're trying to get a business going, you, there's a lot of moving parts and you need to be able to focus on the most important tasks. And so if you're doing the busy work, it's going to slow you down. I, and also I just say back to the same thing is you have to push every day and keep mm-hmm. your blinders on because some days I wake up and you think, oh, this is catastrophic, whatever. And just you have to keep on pushing no matter what, and you'll see that you'll make it to the other side. You got to make sure that those leads and sales are coming in daily. I think that's very important, obviously, because if you're not talking to people, then you're not making money, right? You're not doing sales. Yeah. Right? So let's talk about this again, because some of this is just a mindset shift for listeners. All of businesses is a group of people who solve the problem of another group of people and they do it via a product or service, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. So if you are cackling alone in your room, there's who are you going to help? Yourself? <laughs> <laughs> mentor of mine gave me a quote. He said, delegate as much as you can. So you're calling the shots, analyzing the stats and copywriting. And then I talked to him and we did a recap interview early this year, beginning of this year, actually. And I told him that I change it to, instead of copyright to communicate, mostly because it's about you communicate with your leads, you communicate with your past customers, your existing customers, you communicate with your team. And he agreed with that. But back in the I day, was that. Writing that copy. Yeah. You agree with that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So now what do you, would you talk about some of the greatest mistakes that you see people making? Like you've got friends that have businesses, even clients that can't, what are some of the biggest mistakes you think people make? I think a lot of times people, the biggest mistake that I think people make in business specifically when they're starting out is their investment. What does that mean? And I'm not just talking about monetary investment because Whatever you think the monetary investment is, it's always going to be much, much greater. And it's always much greater. And you need to have literally six months a year in reserves to keep the business going while you make it grow. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. But yeah. I've lost the track of thought. I'm sure. Yeah, no, going. you're good. What greatest mistakes are people making? Okay. So I see people, like I said, the investment thing, they don't realize how much personal investment or monetary investment it takes. And what happens is they get deep into this business and realize they're out of cash or they don't have enough time. And it's a big mistake. And I've seen it happen all the time, not really understanding really what it takes to be successful because it's Mm. it's much tougher than people think it is. That's the biggest mistake, just not understanding the commitment that it would take in terms of time and money. I think obviously keeping track of the books is so important. The biggest mistake, because the reason why I think I'm getting a clouded mind here is I've made so many, because how do I get far? I've made thousands of mistakes. I just, I can't even begin to tell you what where to start. What took you from restaurants to inherited data? So the restaurants was so many hours. I decided that I was, it was going to kill me. So I got out of that. And one of the things I learned in the restaurant business was how to speak Spanish. And I was always interested in construction. So I started a construction company and I found a bunch of specific 
tradesmen, the framers that were mainly spoke Spanish. And I was able to communicate with them to the point to get them on a roof and or on a job site, I should say. And it took off really quickly. And that first thing you know, is I got about 20 framing groups that were working in different job sites in Florida. And then 2008 happened, another fun time for America where we had a recession and it changed everything. And so I got out of that much lost everything with the recession. In fact, the building industry was the first one to feel it. And really people say it happened to the recession in the United States in 2008, but us builders, we felt it in 07. We were the first ones to feel it. I had made a lot of relationships. I was, I had been doing some financing, working with banks and getting some private financing for builders and stuff. And so I took that knowledge and the relationships I had, and I converted that into helping builders negotiate a way to get out of their building projects. So for instance, you're building, you have 10 houses you just built, market mm-hmm. just crashed. You think the houses are going to, you're going to sell them for 2.5, but now they're worth five, 600,000 because of the crash. And so what do you do? And so I would talk to the bank and I'd negotiate a settlement that everybody could try to survive a little bit after the deal was done. And I got a little bit of a reputation doing that. And so I was fixing builder mistakes or builder, I say mistakes because they, some people got themselves into big trouble with that back then and moved me more into the mortgage industry. And I was fixing mortgages for people. And that's where I met this gentleman that represented a bunch of real estate backed hedge funds. He noticed the workouts that I was doing, the negotiations with the banks. And he said, Hey, we need somebody that's really good with banks. What can you negotiate with them? And so they would, the hedge funds would acquire real estate with, through various means, but we'd still have liens attached to the real estate. So I would negotiate the second mortgages, pennies on the dollar for the seconds, and then we'd go after the first so that we could create equity. And so that's what got me in the beginning of inherited data. I was working with hedge funds. We were creating equity. We were moving and shaking with real estate. And then I met somebody that was able to get me the ability to have a connection to access inherited data real-time death data. It's really not available to the public unless you are a bank or you're an insurance company. They have access to this data. But for real estate, it's really unobtainium. And I was able to, over 10 years ago, strike a deal to get this data source. And we used it in-house with the hedge funds for years. But I realized that there was 150,000 properties and we're only focusing in select areas and so five years ago, I decided to leave the funds and go nationwide with the data. And so I fell into it. I was never aspiring to be a data man. Yeah. When I first started selling it, I had no idea what I was doing. I just had to just fall on my face, make mistakes. I had to try it and fail and try it and fail. And finally, someone said, yeah, I'll try your data. And once they tried it, they're like, this is the best thing ever. I knew it was because we worked it with the hedge funds, but I had to get other people to understand that. Yeah, this is, I think this is such a fascinating topic because I've even heard like, even in a recession, the money doesn't disappear. It's just flowing in different ways. In some ways it disappears because they do take bills out of circulation. But generally speaking, there's still money flowing. It's just flowing in different directions and ways. And I don't know if I'm going to go on a tangent here, but a lot of people think of the animal kingdom as like plants and animals, but people don't realize there's a third category and that's fungi, mushrooms, the decomposer. That without them, we would be buried in dead stuff. And that they're, we're actually more similar to mushrooms than we are plants. But my point mm-hmm. is that there's the animals, the plants, and then there's the fungi that eat us both. They eat the dead animals, they eat the dead plants. 
And in any, it's almost like you live your life, you go to the store, you pick up your groceries, and then you come back, you use that, and then there's the garbage. And then what do you do with the garbage, so to speak? And so I don't want to equate it necessarily with garbage, but inherited data is about people have passed away and now there's property and there's relatives that are like, what do we do with this now? I think I've been in our meet and greet, we just talked about that. My my girlfriend of seven years, her great-great-grandmother passed away. Her great-great-grandmother and father amassed a huge amount of land here in the Philippines. And now the seven, eight kids are like, what are, what are we going to do with all mom's land? And there was a will and there was a plan in place, but it's just such a, like I said, it's that moment, this, uh, the second time the car doesn't start. I just love that. And if there's so many other things that come into place, I have another friend. I don't think he's been on the show. Has he? I have to check. But he runs a company called Max Sold, and they do basically estate auctions. Typically, it's around the same thing. Someone passes away, they have all this stuff, and the relatives, they don't want to absorb it. We got to do something with it. And yeah. Somebody that help process and sell that stuff. And so that's that's just a really important. So can we talk about this a little bit? First off, yeah. you said this is unobtainium, this death data. So that's fine. But what typically happens when someone passes away? Other people that may not consider, that may not even consider this whole like event until they're in it. That's true. It depends on who you're talking to. So if you're the person that is now a beneficiary of a house, you have a lot of things to worry about, right? You just inherited a home, you inherited mortgage payments, taxes, insurance, you've inherited property maintenance, it goes on. And then if you live out of state and you have to travel back and forth between that where you live and the property that uh, you inherited, it can be a distressed, a big distressed situation. Mm. And for as far as that, the person that it happens to, they might have a lot of questions for sure as to what's next, what do I do next? As far as a, an investor or a real estate broker or even a probate attorney, from our point of view, we're looking for people that need help. And this is a perfectly distressed situation. And because of the, our ability to have this data source in real time, where we get it in less than 24 hours, the information, we are able to identify these properties months before anybody else. And what I mean by that is, is that when somebody passes away, and the relatives now have to decide what to do with the property, they're going to end up having to most likely, not all the time, but most of the time we'll have to file in the probate court for the transfer of the asset. Once that happens, that becomes public records. And so anybody can access that information. In fact, everybody does. There's companies that data mine it. There's investors that look in the court system directly. And so you have a data source that's filed in the court system, extremely oversaturated with investors and people trying to beat up these people to buy the house, where with our data, we are six months before that happens. On the worst case, three, four months before that happens. So we have plenty of time to get in there, create a relationship and help these people find a solution. And that's really the benefit of this data source. So what are, let's talk about also, all right, the relative passes away. You've got to worry about the property. You got to worry about managing the property. You have to worry about all the contents of the property. You have to worry about vehicles that they may or may not have. How's it work with debts? And all that stuff. I'm going to inherit my parents' debt, am I? No. And some people think that is possible, that you, they could inherit the debt. In fact, some debt collectors will make the make the relatives believe that they are responsible for that debt when they're not. But really, that all happens in the probate court. All the debt and everything is worked out in the court system. Got it. So pro, the probate sounds like is the legal sorting and filing system to deal with how this happens. Yeah, when someone passes away, if there's real estate or assets involved, they're going to have to go ahead and sort it out in the courts, unless there was 
an elaborate will still have to go through the court. The only reason, the only way, there's several ways they wouldn't have to, but one would be if there wasn't a trust and they had everything already figured out in the trust and then they could just avoid the court system. Got it. So that's a real gold nugget for people listening here. Set up a trust. This is interesting because this is something the Panama Papers released uh, corporate structure. I'm going to talk about this for a second, where typically you'd have a company and that company does something, provides a service and all that. And then you have a holding company that owns the company that does the pro- that does the work, that provides the product or service. And that holding company might even own the assets that the business is using. And that holding company, there could be a series of holding companies, but then ultimately they're owned by a trust. And all that trust does is it determines who the beneficiaries are and at what schedule to pay them. And so the trust things come in, it's still an entity, but all it does, it goes, hey, this every whatever. I think at least once a year it has to pay out. And then you have so the beneficiary and the trustee controls the switch for when the water is on and off, so to speak. But there's a legal requirement that it, the trust pays out, I think, at least once a year. So you can't be held hostage by a rogue trustee. But what you can do is you can make the trustee another company. And then you can own the shares of that company. So you can technically be your own trustee and beneficiary. And that you can put these in multiple different countries to now layer over the corporate benefits of different countries at different tiers. And so you start off with a company and if that company does something or gets sued or something, it's you're protected essentially because that company is owned by a holding company and all the profits go to the holding company. That holding company is in a different country or whatever. And that holding company might be held by another holding company. You got all these shell company games. And at the end of the series is a trust, which allows, right? In the event of almost anything, just allows the money to flow through to the beneficiaries. And I think trust fund payments are very tax friendly. I have to double check to speak to your tax advisor. <laughs> it's not tax advice. Yeah, but, I don't have um, any tax advice for you. Yeah. No, I don't <laughs> want those new 87 agents to worry about anything I got going on. But that's typically, I think, the way it would go. So this is this is a really important that pay, where there's pain, there will be payments, right? And mm-hmm. that's, again, we talk about all the businesses is helping people, solving problems. Solving a problem. So with this inherited data, what are the... Typical scenarios. I'm assuming there's probably not 20 different, maybe there are, but I'm assuming there's probably just a handful of most common scenarios with this inherited data that people would have interest in. So if you're looking for real estate and you can use a tool like this to find distressed property, you're going to find, you're going to find people that, that don't really know what's going on with the house, right? So they inherit this house. They don't know what's going on. And so when I'm out there talking to people, I'm trying to acquire property. I find sometimes that they think the bank has already taken the house. The person passed away like a couple months, months ago or whatever. I finally get in touch with them. They're like, oh yeah, the bank already took it, which nine times out of 10, that's not true. So I run into that all the time where that people don't know what's going on with the house. If the house has a second distressed feature besides being someone passed away, let's say that it's going into pre-foreclosure, I find that the relatives really don't even want the house anymore because now there's a problem attached to it. And what they don't realize is that they can still make money if the investor is savvy enough to realize they can still pay these people to get that, get the property and they can solve the problems with the property have. Got it. So those are the two most common scenarios, it sounds like, where the relative- I find that. I find a lot of people that they inherit a home and they don't want to travel back and forth between that property. I find that very common. So I've had people tell me, hey, I'm not coming to Florida. If you can give me a good offer, I'll take it. I have had people tell me, hey, I've traveled twice to the property already. I can't do it anymore. Obviously, if you can give me a good offer, I'll take it. So I find that 
The travel is a big problem when you're dealing with this data source because the once the beneficiaries have to get on a plane a couple of times, they're really ready to liquidate. And that's a great opportunity for investors. It's very interesting. So what are you talked before about having to get you got into mortgages and that let's talk real estate. What are some of the biggest mistakes people make when trying to do get in make money in real estate? I think I break it down into three pieces. One, we've inherited, fixed it, which is the marketing aspect is getting the right people on the phone. But after you get somebody on the phone, that's willing to do a, maybe even sell the property. I find a big mistake and a struggle for people is being creative enough to find a way to structure a deal. Cause sometimes a standard, let's just do a standard purchase contract and go do a mortgage and do a closing traditionally. It's not going to work. You're so gonna, there's other limited. ways to do this. Yeah. For people yeah, that don't limited. know, you're going to, you're going to have a hard time getting traditional financing after a couple of deals where the bank's going to think you're too loaded. You're too heavy. You're too whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And you're, you so if you can perfect. Yeah. Example then. So if you can, if you're creative and putting together deals, you're creative and structuring deals, then you're going to get a lot of deals done. And I think that there are a lot of investors that they hear the story from the sellers or the potential sellers and they don't get it. And then they let that deal go. And there's a potential deal there. I've had my clients call me and say, hey, this is a scenario. What do you think? I said, this is a great deal. And they're saying, how could it be a deal? And I have to explain it to them. But that's where the creativity comes in, how to structure yes. this stuff. Can you give an example? Obviously not naming any names or locations or whatever. Can you give some examples of some different creative deal structures that people may not consider? Yeah. One of the things I learned working with the hedge funds is a, is a, is a process called subject to. It's really subject to existing mortgages. So what we do is we acquire property with the mortgages still attached. And so the reason why it's such a great tool is because if somebody really doesn't want the house, if it's a distressed situation, you can just have them sign over the deed, a quit claim deed to you. You pay them a, a fee to do that. And then you can go acquire the property and you can mess with all the problems that it might have. But that subject too is a tool that you can use. And so this one guy called me one time and said, hey, Ernest, I got this property that it's worth 200,000. The mortgage is at 93,000. They're two payments behind. Is there a deal? And you're thinking on the surface, there's really hardly any equity there. And I said, yeah, it's a great deal. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, I said, offer the lady a thousand bucks. Tell her that you'll take, have her sign over the deed to you. This, the, an attorney would have to do the deed transfer process. But he give her a thousand bucks and tell her that you'll fix the problem with the bank. Sure enough, he, this deal did close and the investor was able to immediately rent the property. He paid the two payments in arrears or two, was two or three payments in arrears to the bank and kept the mortgage going with the existing person that passed away and now has a cash flowing property. And so you can do that through the subject to process. And so I learned that big time in the hedge funds and it's a great way to, to do real estate now or a creative avenue, I should say, for real estate. So this person basically bought the property for a couple of thousand bucks, paid the past due payments, and then just took over the existing mortgage. Yeah, so the mortgage that's due on the house, the total principal is still due to the bank. So that's included in your cost, obviously. So yeah, you paid a couple thousand dollars out of pocket, did a closing with attorney, you've got the deed. But you still have to pay the bank. So it's not like you just picked, you didn't buy a property for less than 5,000. You still, if the mortgage balance is 100,000, you still owe 100,000 on the property. But you've got 100,000 in equity, it sounds like. You, you can... could have plenty of equity. Yeah. And that's beautiful. If I see it all the time, that's one of the things we did in the, in this business for years is just be able to create equity doing that. So what, 
Give us some other creative deal examples, if you don't mind. Gosh, let's see here. So another way, this deal, this one, I have a fantastic one, but it was me really working with the bank to get it done. I was working with this hedge fund. He identified this property as a 10 unit. It was like four, a couple of duplexes and a triplex it ended up being 10 units. And the former owner of the property defaulted on it. And so the bank took the property back. So we were able to do some research and found that the owner defaulted. It was about a $480,000 default from the bank on this property. So the fund, I was talking to banks all the time, the fund I said, hey, go see if you can negotiate some with this. And so I called up the bank and after a good bit of conversation, I said, look, I'll give you a hundred thousand for it. And they said, sure. And they took it. And um, so we, we took over the property. We we're getting ready to do some rehab on it and try to re refurbish the property. And uh, my the guy, hedge fund guy said, give me a couple of days. And so I said, right. and he came back and said, yeah, I sold it for 700,000. So we don't have to worry about rehabbing it. Oh, we took something that the bank thought was worthless and able to turn it into a huge profit on that deal. Huge profit. Now, why was he able to sell it for almost double what the bank? He was found doing? an investor that was looking for a project and it was in one and the area was, the location was right and the project was right. And then the investor took it and wanted to rehab it himself. Got it. So that's almost like a flip. I don't want it. It's basically flipping. Or almost, almost like even bird dogging in the sense that you get it under contract and you find a buyer at a higher price and paper shuffle and your hands are cleared. Well, we actually did have to close on that before we were able to flip it, but still <laughs> we did close and then we did flip it. But it took, we spent some time trying to run the numbers to, to rehab it and was running to dead ends. And so that's why I think he decided to sell it. Got it, got it. So marketing, get the right people on the phone, which Inherited Data can help with obviously too doing creative deal structures, because no matter what, after your first couple of deals and you get a taste, you're going to have to get creative anyhow. The banks aren't just going to give you, hey, put five, 10%, 15% down. At like some point, it just becomes unrealistic, unreasonable. So you got to find these different creative structures. What else? I think if you're looking at the current market, what's going to happen? I think everyone's wondering. And I think that that we're in what's called a loan lock right now. So interest rates were fantastic a couple of years, several years ago. Now they've gone to extremely high levels. And so people can't afford to sell their house because if they did, they couldn't get the same house for the same money because the interest rates are so high. So everyone's loan locked. I feel like that's solved the problem. Uh, we could have gone into a recession here in the United States. I think they stopped it by raising the rates, stopped creating a loan lock situation and eliminating, eliminating an inventory event. And if we had a lot of inventory, it would have been a problem, but there's zero inventory right now. And that's what's keeping the economy doing pretty good right here in the United States right now. All right. So let's talk about the future. Let's talk about that since you brought it up. Five, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what do you think is going to happen? With the markets or in, in real estate in general? Yeah. Where For people that are listening, I, what's your crystal ball say? Yeah, I think that uh, I still think that we're due a little bit of a market correction. I do think that I think that right now they're not talking about house house value, house values falling, and I think that in, if you look at pockets, I think the values are going down. So I think there's going to be an, a correction in the market, but I do think that the, it, we have a serious inventory problem. So I think there's going to be a lot of building in the next several years, next five years, tons of building, and I think that the the market for real estate I think is strong moving forward at this point. I think we did avoid a recession right now because of the rates helped. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of the correction. Something's got to be corrected. I, I think a lot of people, they may or may not. And of course, I'm just sharing my opinions here. 
Don't cry about it. But not you. I'm talking about the listeners. (laughs) Potential sensitive listener that might feel this way. But Canada printed 55-0 years of their annual budget in 2020 alone. That is a whole lot of paper printing. And this is a real simple equation. If I have 100 pieces of paper that represent 100 gold coins, then one equals one. And if I go print another 100 pieces of paper, and I still only have 100 gold coins, every piece of paper now only represents half of one gold coin. If I go print 1,000 pieces of paper. So now there is a saving grace in the sense that they do keep track of these serial numbers. And I've heard that they've taken all the old serial numbers out of circulation. but this has been some of the issue I think that's gone on or all over. My personal opinion, I'm going to preface this, is there haven't really been supply chain issues. There's been the, I don't trust what you say situations geopolitically. Yeah. Because America's price is actually not the only country that prints U.S. dollars. Not. They are not the only country that prints U.S. dollars. U.S. dollars are printed all over the world at specific sites. And these get put into circulation. Certain serial numbers are only permitted in certain areas, which is why you're not allowed to carry cash on planes. They don't want you carrying more than 10,000 on a plane because then it eliminates the control the banks have over controlling which areas get which money. Typically a lot of, fraud, I don't want to say fraudulent, but a lot of surplus cash gets dropped in Africa. I'm not sure why. That's kind of like the, they just dump it there, but they're keeping it in circulation. Certain pools, certain countries, certain borders, certain banking, like banking networks, talk about real estate creative deals. When I, long time ago, I would never, I'm not endorsing this, Long time ago, I taught English and uh, in Japan. I went to Japan to teach English. And after six months, I felt like I needed to get into something else. I got into coaching and consulting with a company called Seven Seas Consulting. We work with Microsoft, Johnson, Tokyo Electron. My, I was working with Shinsei Bank the, at their headquarters. Anyhow, one of the things I was surprised to learn is that Japan had a completely different banking system. And a lot of people that I knew there used that to their advantage where you can't borrow money to get a down payment as a down payment for property. But if you, there's two completely different banking networks that don't talk to each other, nobody's really none the wiser. So there was a bunch of guys <laughs> from the UK that were, were getting loans in Japan. I'm Canadian, by the way, but I know a bunch of guys that were getting loans in Japan to go make down payments on property in the UK. So this issue, I think, where you mentioned like the D, we're going to have some market correction. There's been a lot of talk of degrowth, and I don't know so much about degrowth, but I think that's part of what the supply chain issue was. I think it was, hey, you want to buy my... My, my crate full of avocados, great. That took real resources. There's real nutrient value in this avocado. It'll sustain you. You can make oils from it. What are you going to give me for this? Oh, I'm going to give yeah. you some of this monopoly money. What am I going to do with that? And then the debates. And even now we talk about brick building, like brick is growing, they're booming. Obviously the world is far from de-dollarization, to be clear. We're still, like that's still far away, but I think people do want more diversity because of that. And I think the inevitable... Part, like you mentioned, is a market correction coming in the near future, which is why I think it's an interesting topic because you talked about people are wondering what the future is going to look like. I think a lot more people are going to pass away. Right now, we've got with Ukraine, the war still, the meat grinder still going. So there's a lot of inherited activity happening in that area of the world. And I excess deaths are still up. They have not stopped despite everyone having had the thing which I will not name or having natural, I don't know how to say, I got to be natural. Fuck it. It's my show. Ever having that had the jab or natural immunity, you'd think that things would have petered off, but they haven't. And now they're already. So I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in learning how to, I don't want to say recycle, but you do everything you can with everything that you've got. 
Are you talking about a lot of new home? Do you think there's going to be a lot of building? I think that's right. Canada, where I'm from, there is such a desk. You can't, you can't get land in Toronto is just the stupidest real estate market in the world. Oh, yeah. It's just stupid there. It is nonsense. And the zoning isn't allowing building to happen right now. Anyhow, anyhow. All right. Ernest, this has been such, yeah, this has been such a great call. You've given such great tips. There's so much here. My mind, the wheels are turning. The hamster might be dead, but the wheels are always turning. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? I think we've covered a lot. I do. You did mention a minute, a minute ago about trends, I think, and people passing away and, and some of these reasons why. But realistically, right now, the biggest trend is baby boomers are passing away. Right. Naturally, right. That's what's driving this trend, for me at least, for this inherited homes. It's definitely driving that trend. I'm sure it's driving others too out there. How do you feel the population? Because the world is in a population freefall at this point. A lot of people don't realize it because we haven't necessarily gotten to the other side of the curve, so to speak. But births are way below replacement rate in the vast majority of the world. How do you think that's going to play? This is, I don't want to open up a whole new <laughs> half hour conversation here. but I don't even know if I have much to say about that. I knew that there was a... a, a less the population was slowing but i don't, I really don't have a comment on that yeah, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. oh no you're good you're good you're good it's a worldwide trend it's part of why i think the philippines is a good place to be right now because they still have a positive birth rate so yeah you gotta have you people like to have an economy now does that mean that yeah anyways so well Ernest, <laughs> so thank you so much if people want to learn more they should go to inherited.data.com i-n-h-e-r-i-t-e-d d-a-t-a inherit data.com get some real-time deceased data Ernest I just am so fascinated by your what you're doing here and I think that there's just so much opportunity to help people as well I'm just very it's just an interesting I was as soon as I saw it I was very enamored with the whole concept because I feel like in some respects it's a little controversial but at the same time there's a great need and there's a great yeah. benefit to a lot of parties involved very interesting Thank you so much, my friend. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And uh, maybe we'll have you back for a follow-up at some point in the near future. I'd love it. And I appreciate you having me, have, you having me on today. Thank you.